0: Japan and South Korea are in the throes of a dispute, and it's getting worse. What was a trade war escalated to the security realm last month when South Korea announced that it was pulling out of a key intelligence-sharing agreement with Tokyo. Needless to say, amid a growing threat from North Korea, which is regularly testing missiles that could reach both countries, this dispute between South Korea and Japan poses a big risk for international security. So why are two key U.S. allies who share a common adversary at such loggerheads? And what does a frayed relationship between Seoul and Tokyo mean for regional security and international relations more broadly? On the line with me to answer these questions and more is Andrew Yeo, Associate Professor of Politics at the Catholic University of America. We kick off talking through the World War II era origins of this conflict before having a longer conversation about the global implications of a dispute between Japan and South Korea. Andrew Yeo recently wrote a piece about this row in the Washington Post, which we reference in this conversation, and I'll post a link to that piece on globaldispatchespodcast.com. So, a quick note before we start. I wanted to answer a question that I get a lot, which is which podcasts I most enjoy listening to. Top of that list for me is a show called First Person from Foreign Policy Magazine. The host, Sarah Wildman, is someone I've known over the years in journalism circles and whose work I've long admired. Each week, she draws out from a guest a personal story or narrative that has some broader global significance. It is a great show, and if you are a fan of Global Dispatches, you will certainly enjoy First Person. I've posted a link to it in the description field of the podcast. Do check it out. And of course, as always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of topics I should cover or people I should interview. Use the contact button on GlobalDispatchesPodcast.com to get in touch with me. I love hearing from you. All right, now here is my conversation with Professor Andrew Yeo. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Much of this conflict begins uh, in the early 20th century when Japan was expanding as it industrialized it. It developed a powerful military, a powerful navy, and it began expanding. And of course, it began seeking colonies and it annexed South Korea in 1905. And in 1910, it becomes a colony of Japan. And so this colonial period between 1910 to 1945, in some ways, it isn't just, I mean, we're familiar with colonization, but it was quite brutal and it wasn't just brutal in the physical sense, but um, this was a period where the Japanese actually tried to wipe out um, South Korean culture, South Korean identity. So um, it's, it's one thing to, you know, inflict, you know, harm or torture or, you know, really just, uh, suppress a people group, but then it's another to make them speak only in, uh, the colonial language, which has been Japanese to, uh, prevent students from speaking, Je- uh, excuse me, speaking Korean in school, uh, requiring South Koreans to, to, uh, adopt Japanese names. So it wasn't just the physical sense, but it was also this, uh, in, in terms of uh, trying to wipe out South Korean identity, it was, it was quite, uh evasive, it was very penetrating within South Korean society. So, And, and it's not so, even
0: like it's ancient history. This happened just a couple of generations ago. I'm sure there are many people who are alive who can remember that period. Oh, yes. Uh, and their children as, as well probably, you know, remember the stories handed down to them from their parents.
1: Yeah, so even, so my grandparents both them passed away um, at this point, but, you know, they grew up during uh, the colonial period. My grandfather, my uh, maternal side, uh, he actually lived in Japan for, um, a couple of decades before returning to South Korea after the war, so it's not you 're right it 's not that long ago and you can still find people who lived through um, this colonial period at least through the latter end of the of the colonial time. so we had this uh, period of colonization, but it also meant during World War two um, that many Koreans were uh, forced into labor, so many Koreans uh, were sent to Japan to work in factories to um you know, to provide munitions, to provide uh, you know, equipment for the Japanese military. And we've also heard about the comfort women. It's the euphemism for uh, Korean uh, sex slaves that service the Japanese uh, army, the Japanese military. And so uh, there were uh, young uh, women, girls, really, um, teenagers uh, who were, were sent to various Uh, parts of of asia you know to to taiwan to southeast asia to manchuria and to japan itself to um basically uh, have sex with these japanese soldiers so
0: go ahead well so i mean it sounds like you know you do have these legitimate historic grievances that um are a key factor in relations between these two now economic powerhouses, key allies of the United States, liberal democracies in the region. Um, What happened this summer that caused these these grievances to incite what seemed to be at first a, a trade war between the two countries, but now seems to have grown to something much broader?
1: Right, so even before this summer, I mean, the things, Korea-Japan relations, they've gone up and down. I should mention that in 1965, the two sides normalized relations. And so for the Japanese, I mean, and for both the Japanese and Koreans, they felt that this would be in the final resolution. And they had um, provided Korea what would be equivalent, I think it was $300 million at the time, would be equivalent to $2.4 billion today. Um,
0: like in terms of reparations,
1: uh, well, they didn't call them reparations, but it was, um, given, I mean, it was basically the cover for, um, indemnities during the war, but then they also gave them loans at preferential rates. And you should remember that the Japanese in their minds, they, when this is the last bit about history before we talk about the summer, but I'll mention that for the Japanese, they see, uh, in their minds, they see themselves as having developed Korea, that they had helped brought Korea out of the um, the Joseon Dynasty into what would be considered modern Korea today, um, and they had uh, pr- you know helped build roads, uh, schools, uh, railroads, and so it, yes, it was a colonial period, but it wasn't as they see it as if uh, Korea had also benefited from uh, Japanese colonial rule, and there are actually some Koreans that would concede to that as well too, but. Um, but if we fast forward then to um, the summer, I mean, tensions had flared up. Uh, uh, there was a, there's disputes about the comfort women. There was an agreement that was signed in 2015 by the uh, previous uh, South Korean government under Park geun at the very end of 2015. But that was never really accepted by um, the current uh, Democratic Party of, um, of Korea. So this is the current Moon Jae-in government. And so they kind of walked back On that agreement. So the Japanese were already not happy uh, Mm -hmm. about that. And then in late uh, 2018, the South Korean court actually ruled that in terms of wartime labor reparations, that Japanese companies were uh, on the hook for compensating uh, South Korean laborers at the time. And this wasn't a sudden decision. I mean, this had been going through the South Korean court system for about a decade, but the ruling had uh, just happened to come out in late 2018. So, the Japanese were um, obviously not happy about these decisions and rulings, especially when they see, you know, the 1965 agreement and then even the 2015 conference agreement, uh, bringing closure to uh, these historical issues
0: um like now but, you all of a sudden have this South Korean Supreme Court ruling saying that companies like Mitsubishi on their hook for billions of dollars in reparations for right. you know in for forced labor during you know the colonial period
1: right and then in march i believe that the Koreans said that they would seize assets of japanese companies in korea uh, uh, to to like to to collect that money right because the japanese basically ignored these rulings and they said they weren't going to do anything and so this is where in the, so so you know, moving into the summer, the Japanese had actually said that they were going to. Um, they, so there's a there's uh, certain uh, materials that that the Japanese provide to Koreans. Uh, so Koreans are one of the largest makers of semiconductors, um, which we use for mobile phones and other technology. And I I can't remember the specific materials, but there was three chemicals in particular that. Uh, that Korea relies Japan on to provide. And so with some of these sensitive materials, the Japanese said that they would no longer just um, leave South Korea on this preferred list of trading partners because these are sensitive um, materials that can be used for dual use. And the 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 official line was that the Jap- from the Japanese was that they said that the Koreans were not careful. They were uh, some of these uh, supplies, they may end up in North Korea, um,
0: that Which was is kind of far-fetched. I mean, but, uh, transparently, this was retaliation for the threatening to seize the assets of big companies, big Japanese companies in in right. Korea, right? And, this, and this, so this is Japan retaliating by saying, you know, the raw materials you need for your largest business, making these semiconductors for all sorts of electronics that everyone uses around the world, we're, we're just not going to supply these to you.
1: Exactly. So everyone saw this as being, uh, you know, a bogus argument that it was, I mean, it's it seemed fairly obvious that they were retaliating against the Koreans. And, you know, they had, I think they waited to see if the Koreans would walk back um, on the court ruling, but the Koreans just dug in their heels. And so um, in July, they just said, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to remove South Korea from the whitelist. They had already said that they would restrict exports um, to Korea. So that was the first step. So they were restricting exports of the chemicals, but then they escalated the situation by also saying, we're going to take South Korea off, you know, they have a list of, I think, 25 countries that have, where they allow for um, exports of particular um, sensitive materials, I mentioned that they could be dual use, um, without having some extra level scrutiny or review before uh, making exports.
0: And now South Korea was off that list.
1: Hmm. Um, so, so the, yeah, so that...
0: Well, so, so it seems like you, you know, you have this sort of commercial back and forth, which, you know, really is like, you know, a a trade war, uh, Mm -hmm. that was happening between the two countries. But then it seems, and this was the subject of of a recent Washington Post, uh, article that you wrote. South Mm -hmm. Korea took this to like the 11th degree, uh, by, um, placing certain conditions or pulling out of a military intelligence sharing agreement with, Japan, can you explain what is that agreement and why uh, this move was actually very significant to security in the region and has profound security implications for Asia and, and around the world?
1: Sure. So the Moon government had, you know, kind of threatened back before Japan pulled the trigger on uh, the white list, saying that well, we we may uh, rethink. Uh, the General Security of Military Information Agreement, otherwise known as GSOMIA. So that's the agreement that the Koreans said that they would pull out of. And um, it's important because it allows for Japan and Korea to share um, sens- sensitive information related that's acquired through intelligence, uh, primarily about North Korea. I think that was the biggest uh, reason why they were pushing and why the U.S. was pushing for the two sides to sign this agreement, because if they don't have the agreement, it means that Again, it's you know this is classified information, and you have to review whether you want to release the information uh, to another country or not. And um, when you have this agreement in place, it's almost uh, automatic. There's um, you don't have to go through a review process, and you can imagine if there's a uh, any sort of contingency uh, on the Korean Peninsula, if North Korea uh, launches a, a missile test or if a nuclear test, I mean the both, you know, Korea, Japan, and the United States, right away, they would want to know what sort of intel you have on on the latest test or the latest uh, provocation. And um, not without, you know, being a part of this agreement, it now slows down that process. So you could see it being problematic in a crisis situation where things can escalate quickly. You want, uh, at least from the United States perspective, you would want our allies to be able to share that information. And so, not so now, that's not in place. And I think the Koreans, you know, they they gave uh, the Japanese sort of fair warning that they would do this. But at the time, and even for myself, uh, we just assumed that it was more of, of a bluff that, um, you know, Korea was uh, upset and rightly rightly so because they were they were getting hit economically now by, by the Japanese. But this really escalates the situation once more because we're now moving from the commercial realm uh, to a strategic or a security realm. And the Americans, of course, were not happy as well, too. Um, you had uh, actually John Bolton coming to Seoul in late July to you know to try to encourage the Koreans not to pull out of jisomia. and you know the u.s wasn't keen on mediating, but they were again trying to encourage both sides. So Bolton was in Tokyo before he was in Seoul um, to resolve their differences, and you know the u s. sent several signals saying, you know trying to persuade South Korea not to. Um, pull out of Geosonia, but they went ahead with it.
0: I guess what's what's kind of interesting to me. I mean, you know, you have South Korea and, and Japan, who share this profound common adversary in North Korea that could do real damage to to those two countries, and they also share this, you know, key ally in the United States. Yet uh, the South Korean government decided to pull out of. Jisomia, but you argue in that Washington Post piece that that decision could best be understood not through like an international political lens, but through a a domestic politics. Right,
1: right, exactly. This is one of the biggest puzzles, you know, uh, in international relations of South Korea Japan relations. You would expect that when you have common threats. I mean, this is international relations theory one hundred and one. You you form an alliance against a common threat. So for South Korea and Japan, they both Perceive North Korea as a threat. For that matter, they might see China as threatening. uh, And on top of that, they're both allied to the U.S. Yet, despite all uh, the reasons for why they should form uh, an alliance, if not any tightening of bilateral relations, we see them uh, at loggerheads with one another. And so, I I find that you know it's um, it might not be the only explanation, but I do think that domestic politics has become a major factor in. Preventing South Korea Japan relations from improving. And so in this case, and this is what I outlined in the Washington Post piece, um, and I think a big part of it is that the Democratic Party, and this is so the ruling, uh, Moon government, uh, they are, uh, they've really ramped up, uh, you know, nationalist sentiment. You know, they've tied anti Japan, um, kind of Japan bashing into sort of pro, uh, you know, Korea nationalism. and. It's actually worked to some extent because public opinion polls have shown that slightly over 50% are in favor of you know, Moon's kind of hardline response to Japan. And even if you look at President President Moon's words, you know he sees it as a zero-sum game. He made in a public speech, he said that we will never again lose to Japan, and that sort of rhetoric is really, um, you know, it it demonstrates to the Korean public that you know Moon is a tough person; he's not going to back down. On Japan. And I think the Democratic Party calculates that this is, um, that this could actually be beneficial for them during elections. And at the same time, this party has never really been that supportive of, of, you know, Japan career relations. I mean, I think they, they believe that, you know, having, you know, working relationship is good. But I mentioned earlier um, in this podcast that. Uh, even with the Comfort Women Agreement signed in 2015, this is something that the Democratic Party just did not want to pursue, or they felt that it was done hastily. Um, And even with Gisomia, so this was an agreement that was first attempted in 2012, and it fell apart. And at that time, uh, the Progressive Party, um, back then it was referred to as the Democratic United Party, they, uh, they also opposed this agreement. So this is now a chance, if you don't really like GSOMIA, the military sharing agreement, now would really be the best time to walk away from it when you have the rest of the country kind of wrapped up in this uh, anti-Japan sentiment. So uh,
0: to what extent could worsening relations between Japan and South Korea right now be understood as a consequence of a failure of U.S. policy?
1: Right. So it's the U.S. has always helped keep, you know, Bottom floor, uh, so they they usually help keep Japan-Korea relationships from really hitting are uh, really hitting that bottom. But um, I wouldn't blame the United States for this problem. I mean, this is really uh, an issue between Japan and South Korea, and it's really really only these two countries can uh, resolve it. Um, but certainly, it helps when you have a third-party referee that can help. Um encourage not only encourage the two sides, but I would even say you know try to mediate perhaps not publicly but maybe even behind the scenes of bringing the two sides together but I think the problem with the the Trump administration right now so first is they haven 't been that keen in meeting you know they 've said all the right things in terms of trying of encouraging Tokyo and Seoul to resolve uh differences, but you know president trump for all that, you know, we've seen so far, doesn't, hasn't really invested much time in improving this relationship. Uh, But second, I think it also has to do with the Trump administration's own actions. They haven't really been so keen in, um, you know, praising either the U.S.-South Korea, U.S.-Japan alliance. I mean, the thing that comes up the most is, you know, how expensive it is to um, keep U.S. troops in both countries and how, you know, Japan and South Korea should pay more and so if the Trump, even if the Trump minist- administration were try to um, mediate or intervene, I don't really think they have the diplomatic capital uh, to do so. And so that's something that's different in the past. I think the US, um, I think Tokyo and Seoul you know, respected what Washington had to say, or they, um, if there was any actor that could help referee the two sides, it would be the United States. But I think the United States, again, doesn't have that uh, diplomatic cachet these days to really uh, get the two sides to um, work out their
0: differences. So, I mean, if the U.S. is unable or unwilling uh, to try to referee uh, the situation, as you put it, Um, I mean, how, how bad can, can this get? I mean, how, you know, you also have this context where, you know, North Korea is continuing to test its, its missile systems, its medium and and short range missile systems. Where do you see this situation evolving? I mean, in that kind of context of, of North Korea's increased provocations and the U S unable or unwilling to referee the situation in these two countries, um, now sort of escalating their commercial dispute into like the security realm right
1: so so I don't think that Korea and Japan will actually get into a, a shooting match so in well, terms yeah yeah so in, in terms of like that th- security you know, spiraling out of control between Korea and Japan that would be limited but I think the bigger ramifications are really what's happening with um, North Korea and then also with China because right now I think um, both sides can clearly see that the U.S., um, you know, this trilateral relationship is really uncoordinated. It's it's become unhinged. And in the meantime, we've seen North Korea, um, you know, conducting, you know, tests basically every week, of every, if not every other week since uh, late July. And they've conducted these missile tests from really every part, you know, every corner of their country. We've heard about, you know, a submarine, you know, they, they now have submarine uh, launched, uh, you know, Uh, uh, capabilities to launch nuclear weapons from a submarine. And um, so we do see North Korea, you know, continuing to um, perfect its uh, weapons delivery system. But in the meantime, you know, neither Korea nor Japan are really saying much about this. You know, Japan used to be, you know, on top of things as soon as there was a missile test. You know, they would condemn this right away. They would try to encourage, you know, they would try to get the U.S. to do more, but they would also coordinate with South Koreans. But... That's just not happening and so it's really signaling to the north koreans that hey you know we for the north koreans you know we can continue with these provocations and no one's going to do anything about it i mean even south korea you would think these are short-range missile tests i mean these these are this would certainly affect uh seoul or tokyo but neither side is really making that that big of a deal about this because they're embroiled um in this bilateral um this uh, nasty fight between uh between each other And so I think North Korea is going to continue to uh, move further in terms of its, uh, you know, capabilities and its ability to, uh, you know, launch, launch missiles. And uh, at the same time as China as well, too, I think, you know, China is seeing that, you know, the U.S. really doesn't have uh, either the political will or the capacity to manage, um, you know, what it's calling its Indo-Pacific strategy. And so, you know, I've. We haven't seen it yet, but, you know, certainly in the next year or two, it might embolden Xi Jinping um, and the CCP to expand even further. You know, they have a very ambitious plan for um, Asia and, you know, with the Belt and Road Initiative. And, you know, this is investment, but it also has security implications. And, um, you know, if the U.S. can say a lot of things, uh, you know, that might, you know, they can challenge Beijing on, uh, within this region, within the Indo-Pacific, but uh, it might just be a paper tiger, because again, they, if they're not even able to coordinate their two closest allies, um, it, it really sends a message to China that you know, it's, it, it, this is really our, our time. Uh, this is our time to really expand. And so I think that's one of the fears of not being able to um, bring Japan and, and Korea together on security issues in Asia.
0: Uh, lastly, are there any sort of events or inflection points that you could foresee in the coming weeks and months that might suggest to you how this dispute, uh, may evolve?
1: Um, so it's, unfortunately, i i I have to be a bit more pes- pessimistic here. I mean, I've been reading things that, uh, you know, Japan and Korea have an island dispute, uh, Dokdo for the Koreans or Takashima islands for the Japanese and, yeah, the South Koreans were doing military uh, training exercises near there, and I think some South Korean lawmakers were just on the island. And these are things that certainly the Japanese media uh, would publish and, and and talk about. And so, really, there I, I mentioned that domestic politics is a big factor here, and I think because of that, you know, there isn't going to be much political will on either side to really patch up differences uh, anytime soon, and so. Uh, you know, I'm. You know, you never really know. There could be some sort of crisis that that maybe brings the two sides uh, together. For the time being, I think we're going to see um, this relationship in uh, in a broken state. Unfortunately.
0: Oh, well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. This is like a, a just like a perfectly concise explanation of of what's happening right now and the broader implications of it. So thank you. All thank right. you. It was thank my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Andrew. That was very helpful. And before I let you all go, just want to say a big thank you and shout out to the premium subscribers who keep this show going. Uh, If you are a premium subscriber and you're listening to this right now, let me know what you've been thinking of the bonus episodes I've been posting. These are basically like highlights and best ofs from the six-year history of the podcast. And these are evergreen conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who tell me their life story and we have interesting digressions about the kind of historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected i've personally loved going back uh, re-listening to a lot of these episodes uh it kind of brings me back to when this podcast was uh, a much smaller enterprise than it is today and also some of the stories that have been told continued to to resonate with me to this day all right so thank you premium subscribers we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.